0: Hello and welcome to the Who's e? podcast. On this episode we have another interview for you which was recorded especially for this podcast in 2016 at the Science of the Tunnels convention held at the National Space Centre in Leicester. And this time our good friend John Michael Lindsay interviews the wonderful Sophie Aldred in front of the convention audience. So without further ado, let's just hop in the TARDIS and go back to 2016 and hand over to Sophie and John Michael.
1: Okay, ladies and gentlemen, just to notify you, we are recording this for the Who's He podcast. And if you see me afterwards, I will be able to give you information as to how to find that. But if you have a question, if we get round to questions, and to be honest with Sylvester, didn't really happen, bless him. um, (laughs) But you will get a chance later. Um, But if we get a chance with Sophie and you want to ask a question but you don't want it on the show just let me know in advance and we can edit it out before it goes to show, okay? But Sophie, first of all, thank you very much for joining us here at the National Space Centre for the Science of the Time Lords event. It's your second,
2: third here? Oh, I can't remember. I've been a few times. I just (laughs) love it because when I was a kid growing up I had this book called The Wonders of Space. Now this must have been about 16, 1969 or something like that, 1968, 1969, so yeah, kids, ancient history. Um, and the funny thing is that I was i was fascinated with space and the science of space. And uh, my book, I've still got it, and I should bring it with me actually, because It's, of course, it's very outdated now because that's the wonderful thing about space and science. Although I never was bothered that much with science at school, but the thing is that it's always changing, isn't it? There are new discoveries being made all the time. And, um, yeah, although my book is is now completely out of date, I... I've always had an interest in space, so coming here, I remember when I came for the first time and went up and saw the moon rock, um, it's just awesome isn't it, Yeah, amazing and, and I'm sitting where I'm doing my signing, it's just opposite a screen and there's uh, big pictures of Tim Peake and the, uh, the spacewalks and things he's been up to. And you just think, wow, it's amazing. You know, it's actually real. That's actually happening now. It's amazing. Definitely, definitely.
1: So I'm going to take you right back to the beginning. You were born in Greenwich.
2: Oh, I thought you meant the beginning of time. <laughs> <laughs> <The> <laughs> Unfor- big bang. <laughs> unfortunately, someone else
1: has got the keys to the TARDIS today, so I only managed to nick the jacket. Um, grew up in Blackheath. And some of your first performances were the church choir, would that be fair to say?
2: Well actually my very first performances were when I was about five years old. I just loved play-acting and one of my first characters that I ever played was, um, um, there was a tennis player called Richie, I don't know whether it was somebody Richie or Richie somebody, anyway, he obviously caught my imagination, he was on Wimbledon one year. And uh, and I became Richie. I mean, I completely took on this persona. I had a little cap I used to wear and a tie. I've got photos of myself with a tennis racket with Richie written on a blackboard behind me. And apparently I wouldn't answer to Sophie. I, ha, people had to call me Richie. <laughs> uh, so that was my first character. And then I also remember this very well. Um, I used to be Scott Tracy from Thunderbirds. Oh. Um, no two ways about it. I, again, I took on that persona. I wasn't Sophie. My mum made me a costume because you couldn't get one then. And she made me the whole the sash and the hat. And I remember she made me those um, kind of holder things for the... Um, uh, out of cig- my grandfather's cigar, cigar canisters. She stuck them together. <laughs> and I remember... so. I used to run around the garden saving the world, um, even then. And then I graduated to watching Blue Peter and thinking, oh yes, I could raise some money for Blue Peter. So I used to put on my own plays, and I've got photographs, again, of me um, bossing around the neighbourhood (laughs) kids, many of whom were twice my size saying, directing, uh, writing and starring in my own shows. I was always Prince Charming. Um, I've still got the sort of, um, well, I think it, it looks like of Edwardian satin shirt that I wore. I don't know who that belonged to, somebody in my family. It was in the dressing up basket. <laughs> um, and a hat. And uh, we used to put on plays and the poor, poor parents used to suffer through the, these plays and then give us, uh, you know, six old d for blue peter (laughs) so that's where it all started
1: so the question is did you get a blue peter badge
2: and the answer is yes i did yes and in fact i i uh, when we came to do doctor who and i know we're not meant to be talking about but this can't can't mention this i can't not mention this so you know my jacket well Yes, exactly. <laughs> <That one. laughs> Precisely. Um when it came to do the show, I mean to cut a long story short, the, the the costume designer and I went out looking for for stuff for the jacket. It was my whole idea to have a jacket like that and, you know, the look and everything. Um and we found lots of badges. Um, we found the the patches on some little funny shop in Oxford Street and then he collected a few and then I put some of my own on so I had, my mum is a huge Rupert Bear fan so I had a Rupert Bear badge and then I had we go. <laughs> and I had my Charlton Athletic badge, and I was just saying to someone earlier, Ace wouldn't have, wouldn't have supported Charlton Athletic, so that was very unmethod of me. <laughs> it was my own my own putting my own stamp on the costume. She would have probably supported QPR or somebody like that living in Perivale. But um, <laughs> anyway, so and then I suddenly I thought I know my blue Peter badges. Now that came about the whole idea for the jacket because I was doing Fiddler on the Roof up in Manchester when I got the call to do Doctor Who. And um, I was was out at a club one night with a friend of mine, and there was a guy at the bar wearing one of those black jackets, because they were very trendy at the time. Nobody was really wearing them. And he had a Blue Peter badge on his jacket. And I said to my friend, oh, I love Blue Peter. I I wonder where he got his badge from, because I've got some as well and he said why don't you go and ask him so i went <coughs> up to him at the bar and i said um excuse me i really like your jacket and then where did you get your blue peter badge because i've got blue peter badges uh from when i was young and the guy said oh i work on the program um and we had a chat <laughs> da, 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 and he was a really nice guy and anyway fast forward six months seven months i've got the part as ace go into studio for the first time and sylvester's dresser is the same guy michael no who wore the blue pizza badge. <laughs> and i was going look look what you inspired
1: fantastic so,
2: amazing i mean a brilliant story anyway when I, I i thought okay well i'll wear my blue pizza badges so i put them on my jacket and um in the first day of studio the camera um, the camera goes on and they look at my my costume. My tights that I was wearing really strobed, as we call it, you know, was making the cameras go bonkers because they were stripy. So hence I had to go... The, the red ones were kind of um, a, a last minute thing because I wanted stripy tights but couldn't have them. And then uh, somebody came across with a message for me to say, um, before we start recording, um, we just got to check something where did you get your blue peter badges and it was like what a random question and apparently what had happened was that um in tv center there was this wonderful thing called the ring main and whenever anyone was filming in a studio everybody in the offices could just switch a channel on their monitors and could see what was going on what was being filmed and and the, the studio feed which is why so many Doctor Who fans ended up working at the BBC (laughs) because they could just watch Doctor Who being made the whole day. Um, And somebody from the Blue Peter office had spotted that I was wearing Blue Peter badges and they had to check that they were my own badges. So they came over, and I said, oh, yes, um, they are my own badges. They said, when did you get them? I said, probably around 1972 or something like that. And they went off and looked through their, no computers in those days, of course, looked through their index cards, which they, they had all these blue Peter badge winners. sure enough, there I was, Sophie Aldred blue peter badge uh, so i was a, that's and i was allowed to wear them Wow! and then actually funnily enough i must look out this letter but i've been clearing out my mum and i've been clearing out a family house and we found loads of letters that my mum wrote during my childhood to my grandmother which is a, so amazing to be able to read about myself uh, what when it was actually going on, and one of the letters I couldn't believe it. I opened it and I said, um, "Oh, Sophie got a blue Peter badge today through the post." So I know exactly the 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 uh, the dates. So I must look that out because I know you guys love this. Song. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, that's
1: what we're here for. Yeah. So. After school, you went on to Manchester University to become a trauma student. What was it? Was it the plays that you'd started? Was it the whole performance? What was it that pushed you to think, you know what, actually, this is what I want to do?
2: I think I was very lucky in that I always knew. There was no doubt about it. I did a bit of writing when I was younger as well, and I thought that I might want to do that. Um, But then I realised that was a bit like hard work, so... uh, Mm -hmm. um, But I always loved it. I did loads of plays at school, and I did a drama club for a while, and I just loved it. So, when it came to sixth form, um, there was no drama O-level as it was in the time, or A-level then. Um, You just did English, just had the straightforward courses. Remember that, guys? It's nothing like media or film <laughs> or anything cool like that. It was all English, maths, French, wasn't it? Um, anyway, so I did I did um, English, French, and music A level, and I sang as well. And I had a, a really good English teacher who was who encouraged me, and I did lots of plays and things. And I just knew it's what I wanted to do. Um, I went to quite an academic school though, so. Um, They kind of—they didn't really know much about drama school. Really, nobody had ever been to a drama school. Um, But I did audition for drama schools, um, and all of them, because I was very young for my year, being August the twentieth birthday, same as Sylvester. I was almost like a year behind a lot of my friends. Um, So I was actually only seventeen when I left school, Um, and they all said. Uh, you need more life experience before you come to drama school, and I didn't want to take a year out. I wanted to get on with with my life. That's so I thought at the time. And so my teacher said, "Well, have you thought about doing a drama course at university?" This was unheard of in those days. There were five universities in the UK that actually offered a drama course. Believe it or not, it seems hard to believe now. There was um, there was Bristol. Manchester, uh, Aberystwyth, Exeter, maybe that was it. Maybe that was just four. And my headmistress also said, oh, you should look at Edinburgh because then you can go to the Edinburgh Fringe and do lots of plays. So I went to Edinburgh for an interview to do English and it was so blooming cold. <laughs> and I said, look at me now, you see, I'm very cold-blooded. It was so cold that I had to get up in the night, put all my clothes on, and get back into the bed. And I thought, do you know what? I don't think I can spend four years here like,
1: being cold.
2: And then the next interview I had was in Manchester. And I arrived in Manchester, I've never been there before, from, you know, posh southeast London girl from Blackheath. And I got to, to Piccadilly and it was drizzling Uh, amazingly enough and I got in a cab and went down Oxford Road and I just looked around and I thought I like this place and I got to the drama department and I loved the people there and I met some really nice people and I just felt I just knew that that's where I was gonna go and I was you know luckily I was offered the grades and I got in and I really thoroughly enjoyed it. Mm.
1: So four years later you graduated and you start working at two very opposite ends of the spectrum. You start working in children's theatre, but also in working men's clubs.
2: Mm. Yes, yeah, interesting. Well, when I left um, Manchester, I stayed on for a year because I loved it so much, and, and um, I decided, I thought, right, what do I need to do in order to be an actress? Because I've always had a good a plan, you know. And I thought, right, I need to get my equity card because in those days, you couldn't work without an equity card. It was a real catch-22. You couldn't work without an equity card and you couldn't get work without an equity card. So I thought, right, how am I gonna, how am I gonna get around this one? But the first job that I did was, um, I, I went down to London for a bit and uh, looked in the back of the stage newspaper and they advertised a pantomime, um, a very dodgy company equity blacklisted. <laughs> uh, basically, we rehearsed at Plasto Boys Club, which is brilliant. And it was very East End, you know. It and it was this these couple of guys who were obviously very dodgy. Um, and they worked out that they could make a lot of money by hiring us actors, paying us sort of cash every week. And by f- sort of... Um, we all rehearsed the same... Panto. It was about six six different companies, and then we each had a van, a set, and costumes, and we all went off to different parts of the country. And I chose to go to the northeast. Um, I'd never been there before, um, and it was midwinter. Um, but because I could get a longer contract, I wanted to work for I think it was three months instead of two. I played Baby Bear and the the sort of henchwoman of the, of the baddie and I drove the van and did the PA and we drove up there. I remember driving all the way up to the northeast and uh, we stayed in this little cottage in um, Corbridge which was beautiful but the cottage had walls about this thin and the, you know, water running down the inside of the walls and snow and everything and it was fantastic. We had a great time. Um, and we went round working men's clubs and I'd never, I'd never, I didn't know about working men's clubs, I didn't know they existed so of course again I had the most fantastic experience Um, and that it was just after all the miners had been laid off and all that palaver so they had very little money but they did put on this panto and we gave them the best panto that we could Um, and the kids were in fact I mean I remember that actually a lot of the kids uh, lots of the clubs couldn't even afford to give them the kids sweets you know they'd give them they'd give them you know whatever fruit came off the back of the lorry that weekend you know it was it was an amazing time hard to think about that now um, but sort of a community communities all around the northeast that had gone through that situation and were actually proper poor um, that I'd never seen before. Anyway, I realized that these working men's clubs were brilliant, they were real centers for people, communities to get together. So I thought, do you know what, I could probably get my equity card singing around these places. And one of the other guys and I got together a few songs and um, we started going around the working men's clubs around Manchester, I would ring up the concert secretaries and say, can we do some shows? We started working and, and my the guy, Paul, he realised it was not for him. He just got too nervous. He didn't, he, he couldn't cope with it. So I thought, well, oh, that's a shame. But somebody who was still at the university, he'd been in the year below me, said, oh, I'll do it with you. So he was called Paul as well, so I was lucky. <laughs> so we just went around the working men's clubs for six months or so, getting contracts, singing. We had some amazing experiences. And then finally we got enough to get our equity cards, came back to London, and then that's when I started um, looking in for adverts and stuff. And then I, the first thing I saw was for a children's theatre company in the east end of London, going around, again in a van, um, going around um, parks and, and um, sort of open spaces with a show. Um, and it was great, Met some, again met some really nice people. I worked for them for a year we did a lot of work in schools. Um, it was a fascinating, brilliant time and great training. It was really good. Tell us
1: something about the opera of Hansel and Gretel.
2: Oh, yeah. Oh, If you haven't ever heard the opera of Hansel and Gretel, it's so beautiful. You'd recognize some of the music. For example, um, right foot first left foot then turn around start again with my <coughs> that's from that's from hansel and gretel and then there's that beautiful when they go to sleep um, there, it's, um it's absolutely beautiful music um and i auditioned for gretel for Polka Children's Theatre in Wimbledon, and um, and got the part, and we did a, a big tour of, of the UK, including Belfast and um, Coventry and all over the place. Did we do Leicester Haymarket? I can't remember. Um. Anyway, we did. We we went round. It was really great fun. Again, I mean, a small company. Pretty much, we didn't have a van this time. That was the only difference. They paid for our travel. <laughs> they paid for us to, <laughs> to go on the a train. Yeah, but it was it was a fabulous experience. And because um, you were working
1: with was it Engelbert Humperdinck on that one?
2: Well, Engelbert Humperdinck wrote the music, but there, it's not the Engelbert Humperdinck who you would know. It's there was there was originally a composer whose name is Engelbert Humperdinck. And I guess that the next Engelbert Humperdinck got his name (laughs) from him, I don't know. But yes, I think it was the original Engelbert. It's really hard to say that. Engelbert (laughs) (laughs) Humperdinck. Engelbert Humperdinck, yeah. Um, I think, well, we can look it up on Google, but I think he was a 19th century composer. I'm not quite sure. Anyway, if you get a chance to listen to Hansel and Gretel the opera, then do. It's lovely.
1: Fantastic. So then, of course, you made the move to TV. How did that occur?
2: Well, uh, I was doing, I thought I was going into the musical stuff. Um, I'd done a lot, of, obviously, with the children's theatre. I'd done the opera, um, and then I got into Fiddler on the Roof, uh, where Topol was doing it in Manchester, at the opera house there. And I went up for an open audition, and um, I they gave me part, which was amazing. So I was in the, the back row of the chorus and understudying Hoddle, the second daughter, as well. And in fact, I was at a... Um, I was at a signing in Birmingham last year, end of last year, and uh, there's Amanda Noor who played one of the daughters, and I hadn't seen her since then, it was amazing, and she's been in some sci-fi things, so she does does the rounds of these conventions and things as well. Anyway, so um, my agent that I'd got by that time put me up for three episodes of Doctor Who, uh, they wanted somebody who could ride a motorbike and who looked younger than they really were. And for some reason I'd learnt to ride a mo- motorbike, um being a bit of a tomboy. And um I I I loved it. I had a I had a little sports bike, a little 125 Honda thing I used to whiz around on. And um so I went to London and did the audition for Chris Clough, who was the director of Dragonfire. And um didn't think much of it rather begrudged the train fare to be honest because I had to go on the expensive train and I was being paid equity minimum in the back row of the chorus you know Um, and then uh, got a recall two weeks later so back down to London I went thinking oh no another train fare and met John Nathan Turner the producer in his office which was had Dalek curtains and Dalek carpet as I seem to remember (laughs) and um uh And he asked me to read. There's a speech in Dragonfire, which Ace has, um, (coughs) which is all about um, (coughs) wondering who her mum and dad really were. And it's a bit of a monologue. So, (coughs) excuse me. Um, I read that. He gave me a few notes. I read it again. And I didn't hear anything and that was all I had. I didn't have a screen test, I didn't have anything, I didn't meet anybody else. It was amazing actually. It was just a hunch that John Nathan Turner had and, uh, and it paid off. <coughs>
1: Fantastic. Yeah. I tell you, we are going to dip just briefly into Doctor Who because I want to know what it was like for your first day on set.
2: Mm. <coughs> well there was the first day of rehearsals because we were lucky enough to have rehearsals in those days. Sylvester and I were just talking about that at lunchtime. Um, I remember walking into this room, which was about this size actually, and there was a table with all these actors around it, and there was Pat Quinn from the Rocky Horror Show, Tony Asoba from Porridge, I remembered him, uh, Bonnie Langford, who I remembered, you know, she was a, a, a just a legend, you know, Sylvester, who I knew from vision on. <coughs> And little old me, who didn't know anyone and who nobody knew, so I kind of sat there like this. We all introduced ourselves around the table, and um, you know, no, some of them didn't need any explanation. Hello, I'm Bonnie Langford. <laughs> <laughs> <That> <laughs> oh,
1: you're not kidding,
2: I said. <laughs> and um, yeah, and uh, and then by the end of the read through, everyone was turning around to me and saying, "Ooh, you've got." we've got a nice part haven't you and I remember Andrew Cartmel being particularly nice to me coming up afterwards and saying oh I really like what you're wearing I think I think Ace would wear that sort of thing and I was wearing some army shorts and Doc Martens and stripy tights and a, you can see where, it, where, where that was <laughs> heading um, I wasn't wearing a jacket with badges on by then um, <coughs> but so that was my first day of rehearsals and I, I don't remember the moment where I met Sylvester but at some point we found out that we had the same birthday which was great and we just hit it off straight away we, we just got on so well he says it's because I laugh at his jokes I don't know, we shared the same kind of politics and humour and I don't know, I just I really got him and he really got me. It was really fantastic. So first day on set was interesting because I was the one who had to ask where T V Centre was because everyone was <laughs> saying, Oh, see you, see you at T V Centre. Um and um and I arrived there and I got to reception, I kind of gave my name, they gave me this key with a number on it, and I wandered around and I found this room with the number on, and I went in, and there was my costume hanging up. So I thought, all oh, right, okay, better put my costume on. So I put my costume on, and then there was a knock at the door, and somebody came and said, "Oh, you're you're wanted in makeup." I said, "Oh, I'm not having any makeup." And they said, "What?" And took me up to makeup, and I said to the designer, "Oh, I thought you said I wasn't having any makeup." She said, "Oh no, she meant I meant you were you're just having natural makeup because you." You, it's just natural. So she put. Then she sat me down and put me in more makeup than I'd ever had on my whole life. <laughs> and um, and then I kind of had to sort of piece my way around. And and Bonnie suddenly went, Oh, you haven't been here before, have you? Don't you? Oh! And everyone suddenly went, Oh! <laughs> so then it was great. The actors were so helpful, especially Eddie Peel, who played the baddie and he gave me sort of notes on how to look, at the, how to look so that the camera would be kind of favouring my face and I loved it, I absolutely loved it, I really completely got into the whole sort of technical side of it and I loved working out the best angles and which camera was on at which time and, and all that, I loved it.
1: Wonderful, so then you went <coughs> on to build up as well as Doctor Who quite a considerable body of TB, were. Um, you were with Corners? Mm. initially which was like a, yes what was that like like a TV show answering questions from its audience or its viewers
2: yes that's right in fact it was not long after I did the audition for Doctor Who that I'd sent off because I always wanted to be a TV presenter children's TV presenter like a blue Peter girl um, and so I sent off a letter to somebody in at the BBC and I don't know, somebody must have taken pity on me and they wrote back and said, oh, I found your letter, like your CV. Would you like to do a general audition for um, children's TV? I thought, yeah, too right." And So I went along for this audition. Saw a panel of people including, um, I'm not sure whether Cynthia Felgate was there, legendary Cynthia Felgate, but there were a, a few top producers in BBC children's TV there and um, I had to sing a song, um, do a piece from a show, um, I had to do a make, you know, backwards making stuff, which I'd, I'd, I'd always done all my life in preparation, because I just, I love making things, and I'd always practiced doing it to camera as well, just in case anyone ever wanted me to, <laughs> to uh, be on Blue Peter, um, and uh, work with a puppet as well, which again I'd done a lot of in the children's theatre so for me it was just a doddle it felt just totally natural to do that and um, and then I didn't hear anything and then a couple of months later um, wonderful Alison Stewart who's now very high up in, in um, children's TV she said oh um, come for an audition for this thing called Corners we're looking for a, pre- a new female presenter so I went down again it was really I loved it And I got the job so 1987 was an amazing year because I filmed Doctor Who first that was uh, I was filming in August we did Dragonfire in the studio and then in September I started Corners and for the next sort of three years I did six months Doctor Who six months Corners so I was I had the best TV training I've ever heard anyone have because I was literally in the, at the BBC nearly every day. I was doing drama, obviously with Doctor Who. I was doing stuff on camera. I was doing location work, studio work. And then with corners, I was doing, obviously, the presenting, which is a different discipline. Um, I was doing singing. I was doing playing silly characters. I, I'm sure there's some on, on um, YouTube, some bits of corners. But it was really great fun. I loved the, all the people that I worked with. In children's TV, really met a fantastic bunch of people, and um, yeah, I couldn't have been happier.
1: And then you went on to Melvin and Maureen's Musicograms.
2: Well, that was the same team that did Corners, um, including Simon Davis, who who uh, I co-presented Corners with for the first couple of series I did he was writing a lot of it by then we were both writing actually then but simon was really into writing uh, he was writing a lot of the sketches that we did and a lot of the songs and he and alison stewart same alison came up with this idea melvin and maureen's music Grants, which was ostensibly to, sh- to introduce children to music of all different kinds um well i mean we just had again uh, it sounds like we I'm just going to work for a laugh, but <laughs> it, it really was such good fun with Matthew Devitt, who's an amazingly accomplished musician he could just he's one of those people who can pick up any instrument and play it and uh he was just fabulous to work with um, I just remember just mostly tears of laughter just running down my cheeks making Melvin and Morris music again great.
1: Now obviously we all know from Doctor Who you met with some weird and wonderful monsters but um, tell me something about Tiny and Crew.
2: Ah yes well again after I'd started doing presenting <clears throat> I was very lucky because just down the road where I lived in Blackheath um, I'd known for many years um, Carol Chell, who used to present Play School, I don't know if you remember Carol Chell Carol is just such a lovely woman and her daughters were at my school, a bit younger than me so I used to go (coughs) babysit for for her daughters, Sophie and Emily (coughs) and and Carol actually helped me with um, my audition speeches for um, for drama school, when I was auditioning for drama school Um, so she'd been, sort of, she'd popped in and out of my life And she just um, rang me or wrote to me one day and she just said, I'm producing all the preschool output for the children's channel, um, which is a a new satellite channel um, that had been going for a bit. She said, but I don't want to do the presenting anymore. I want to concentrate on the producing. Would you like to be the presenter? And I said, yeah, that would be brilliant. So that's where that started, and I started working for for them um, in St John's Wood. They had a very small studio there, and then I just went on to, to just for several years to do all their preschool output, including Tiny and Crew, who was a um, a blue wiggosaurus, this uh, big kind of um, funny monster character, um, <clears throat> and uh, and it was just really again great great fun Um, and um, I'll be forever grateful to the children's channel again it was a bit like a family a bit like Doctor Who all the production people were roughly the same age and we just we had a great time together we just um, we all got on really really well and in fact that's where I met my husband so
1: and of course you were writing as well because you wrote um, Ace the inside story of the end of an era Mm. Now I don't know whether you're aware of this, but I, l- I looked this up the other day, and it's going anywhere between 50 and £160 pounds to own a copy on Amazon.
2: Wow, amazing! Cause, I hope um, you
1: get a share of the royalties for that. No,
2: uh, sadly, I don't anymore. But um, uh, yeah, well that's amazing because um, I remember it being in the remainder bookshops at one point. You could get it. So somebody's obviously gone in there and bought them all up. uh, No, I'm really, I'm so glad I did that book with Mike Tucker because it's actually a brilliant record of how we made the programme. We didn't think of it like that at the time, but it's a sort of, it's a kind of how-to book in a way, make a TV programme in the 1980s. Um, and we realised we had all these photographs that we'd taken because Mike and I were always snapping away. I mean, in those days, it was all um, it was proper cameras with film that you had to go and get developed at the chemist. Do you remember? And or bonus print. Do you, remember, <laughs> yes. do you remember bonus print? Yes. And they used to do that special thing where you could get the get the actual picture and then they'd have two little ones at the side. Do you remember? You used to clip off. Yeah. The kids don't know what we <laughs> Um and you didn't know what you were gonna get. So you used to take the photo and then you'd think, Oh and you had to wait, kids. You had to wait a week sometimes. How about that? To see what you'd got. And they'd come back in the post and you'd open it all up and you'd go, Oh no, I have my finger over every single one. And
1: you get the little stickers up and saying underdeveloped yes, or something. Or
2: they'd be just white. Yeah. Or black.
1: That's it. Yeah. 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 And now you can do it all on your phone.
2: Amazing yeah
1: so we'll touch very briefly because unfortunately we're running out of time um tree food tom oh yes now of course that has you working with another doctor who alumni
2: well it was very funny because um when i i got the part of tree food tom and then my agent was negotiating and they said to me right well they can't go any higher because there's somebody famous going to be playing twigs um and I said, oh, male or female? And uh, they said, oh, we don't know. So we were waiting for ages and ages to find out who this famous person was. And um, my husband rang me one day and he said, oh, they found out who it is, guess. I was like, well, is it male or female? It's male. It's somebody who you always, it's somebody who you fancy. And I said, but darling, I never fancied anyone since I laid eyes on you, which is actually true. Apart from, <laughs> and then when he said, I went, oh yes. And um, David and I did Cold It's a big finish story yeah. years before he got famous. And I I remember him walking into the green room, and um, and my legs went a little bit. Wobbly. <laughs> I mean, he's he's far too young for me, bless him. And he's you know he's the, one of the loveliest men in the whole wide world um but yeah he's it was very funny that he was uh, you know he's my twigs he's my sidekick um so yeah he did the first series and it was lovely to work with him again and really good fun and he's such a laugh and we had a great time and the, the writing was so good as well that we, we really worked well off each other and stuff um and he actually had his first baby with Georgia when while we were doing the program and there were a few babies going around actually born that year um, and then sadly after that he he just got too much other work on I mean even as it was he had to do some of it separately from us because he couldn't just could not fit it in um, so yeah he's um, yeah he texted me and said oh, got to leave tree top of this he said but um, Anyway, so now we now I work with Mark Bonner, who's also been in in uh, New Doctor Who, who um, who sounds very like him actually, and who's absolutely lovely as well. These Scottish guys are lovely. Um, yeah, so I'm very lucky to I've just worked consistently with really lovely, amazing people. Very lucky.
1: Yeah. I'd love to talk more with you about Strangeness in Space, but unfortunately we've run out of time. So if you're going to get autographs from Sophie, talk to her about Strangeness in Space. Yes,
2: come and get make some Make sure you get company.
1: signed up, listen to the episodes. If the Kickstarter comes along again, sign up, pay your money. It's fantastic stuff. It's Thank yourself, you. Trevor and Simon, and it's, it's just wonderful comedy. It's really, really good. So make sure you do that. But. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, the very lovely Sophie Eldred.
2: Thank you.
0: Thanks once again to John Michael and the folks at the Science of the Tunnels Convention for bringing us this interview. We have one more interview to bring you, which is with the seventh doctor himself, Sylvester McCoy. So keep an eye out for that on your feeds over the coming weeks. So, until next time then, it's goodbye from me, Phil. Goodbye. For listening if you don't want to miss the show please don't forget to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts and if you get time please also give us a review you can also listen to our podcast via our website which you can find at hyphen he podcastcouk and you can also listen to us on Spotify Google Podcasts Amazon Music Player FM and TuneIn if you'd like to leave us some feedback about the show please visit us on our Twitter account which is who's underscore he underscore podcast and can also find us on Facebook just looking at the Who's He podcast Facebook group.